And as they're going, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 11. And while you're doing that, if you would not mind affording me a, an update on this guy, uh, little Wesley, uh, as of yesterday, Lord willing, the plan is he's coming home today. Uh, so, so thank you. Ten days ago, he was literally at death's door, and now, Lord willing, he's, he's going home. So uh, uh, been quite an experience. Here's a, another picture. Uh, that's actually him on the left and his now two-year-old sister on the right. I, I, I think they look like identical twins to me. But, uh, you know, so, so much, obviously, they've been through uh, what we've experienced. But, um, you know, it also strikes me that today is the day we, we call Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And I, I think about, who knows, hundreds of thousands of dollars of doctor bills, you know, the, the greatest technology uh, that we have, you know, cooling his little body down to 92 degrees uh, for three days, all of those things. Ryan said that pretty much all the NICU nurses he talked to were either themselves in NICU or knew somebody, a close family member who was, who was a NICU nurse. So, so all that care, all that expense, right, for our, our little grandson. And at the same time, perhaps even in the same hospital system, uh, there are just the opposite going on, abortions. You know, so tragically ironic in, in that regard. Uh, but obviously, we are uh, so, so grateful and have felt clearly your prayers and really several, several churches uh, praying for him. And uh, we found out, it was a day after or so, his middle name uh, is Charles. So he's Wesley Charles. And uh, they weren't aiming at a theologian. Uh, Ryan's middle name is Charles, and my dad's first name was Charles. Uh, so that's where that came from. But Karen just happened upon one of Charles Wesley's hymns, which I wanted to share. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to God alone, laughs at impossibilities, and cries, it shall be done. Now, obviously, first of all, this was a, a hymn from Wycliffe Bible Translators. It's pretty much their, their core hymn. And you look at that and say, say, cries, it shall be done. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever you're asking for by faith will always be done, right? At, according to our prayers, we, we don't know. And, and this is another thing we reflect on is, is why was Wesley healed and other kids aren't, other, other adults, uh, etc. cetera. So uh, it's, it's been good, but obviously we're happy and look forward to seeing him at his home. So if you would follow along in Revelation Chapter 11, we started this two weeks ago, and we'll finish up the two witnesses who I call my two martyrs. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I'll grant authority to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky. 
that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to, do, to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. By way of a quick review, first three points from two weeks ago, this will take place in the future. It was meant to prepare us now. So whatever you read in the book of Revelation is meant to help us now. Don't just think of it as something that is coming. God grants authority for believers to be trampled. That's what's happening here. The last three and a half years will be the worst in all of human history, especially for believers. But God also grants power and authority to his witnesses. And that's not just his two witnesses, but all of his witnesses. Obviously, we don't have the same sorts of authority. But as we'll see again this morning, uh, we do have all that we need. And then picking up number four this morning, the witnesses did not hide from the beast. Uh, this much seems clear, at least from what we read. The witnesses do not seem to have a fear of the beast. Now, they're human. Uh, they're, they're just like us. They're not supernatural beings. They probably experience fear. We just don't have that recorded for us. Now, you say, well, that, that's not really helpful because they're like superheroes. Do, do you see what they're doing here? That somebody bothers them, fire comes out and destroys them. Plagues, right? This is, uh, I, I showed you a while back that six of the ten plagues uh, that, were, uh, that Moses put upon, the Lord put upon Egypt are in the book of Revelation. And now here we have any kind of plague. So it's going to be way more than ten. And how often? As often as they liked. So picture the ten plagues of Egypt on steroids, multiplied many times over. This will be an absolutely incredible ongoing display of supernatural power. And the entire world will respond similarly the way Pharaoh did with a mixture of both fear and rage. So you might be thinking, yeah, if I had those powers, I wouldn't be afraid either. But you have to remember, the beast is coming for them, and they know that the beast is coming for them. As they bear witness to Jesus, they're painfully aware that their own martyrdom is coming. That's why I call them not just the two martyrs, but they're the lead martyrs. Remember, like a lead worshiper, somebody up here like Seth was doing, they're the lead martyrs. They're, they're going to show us how to bear witness and how also to be a, an actual martyr, uh, to, to die because of that witness. They're the lead martyrs. To make matters worse, they, they essentially know the day of their death. Regardless, they don't show, anyway, uh, fear of the beast. But, but again, they're human. 
But what they're doing is what you and I can do is be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk by faith and obedience, right? It's that simple. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, walk in obedience by faith. Can every Christian do that? That's what these two witnesses are doing. Now, they have the supernatural powers, but fundamentally, they're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience by faith. They bore witness to Jesus despite the impending threat. I didn't have that grave an opportunity, but this last week I did take a couple opportunities. I was working out uh, early in the week, and there's a guy I hadn't talked to in a while. I went straight up to him. I didn't greet him. I didn't say his name. I just said, do you want to hear about a miracle? And uh, so I told him the, the story of Wesley, because uh, I'm pretty sure this guy doesn't know Jesus. Uh, didn't share the whole gospel, but just left it there, just sort of planting that seed. And then a few days later, I was talking to another guy, and I said, hey, do you want to hear a, a story about a miracle? So we talked a little bit more about faith and prayer. Uh, so taking advantage of those things. Now, I wasn't afraid. Uh, there's nothing to fear there. In fact, I, I wanted to tell that story, right? I was excited, so I wanted to tell that story. Uh, but, but sometimes we can be afraid. So, for example, if you ask most people, are you afraid to share your faith? Most of will say, yeah, man, that's me, or yes, I, I always have a little bit of fear. But fear can be so much a part of our lives that we're, we're not even aware of it. So we might be aware of something like that, that, that's, that can be pretty obvious, it's in your face, but, but if you ask the same people, are you afraid, I'm uh, sorry, uh, did, did you have uh, uh, fear uh, when you were angry to your kids, when you expressed anger to your children, was there fear there? They'd say, well, no, I, I, I was mad, yes, you know, it might be a little anger, uh, it might be a lot of anger, but, but I wasn't afraid, why, why, why do you ask? Well, here's the thing. We, we may not be aware of the hidden motivations of our hearts. And my, I would argue, and I am arguing here, that most anger it comes out of fear. So what happens is there, there are idols of the heart. So, so for example, you might have the idol of, heart, of the heart of respect, and your children disobey, children disobey you, so you're disrespected. You have a fear of disre being disrespected, so therefore anger comes out. We may get angry because our heart idol is a good reputation. And if our children disobey us and if we're in public and other people see our children disobeying us, our fear is that we will be, uh, that we'll be found out. Uh, therefore, we express anger to manage the situation. We might have a heart idol of control, and when our children disobey us, clearly we're not in control at that moment. So we express anger to try to control the situation because we're afraid of losing control. You see how messed up we are, uh, how much uh, fear can, can weave its way into our hearts and minds and we're not even uh, aware of it. The two witnesses, again, from what we see in the text, did not seem to have a fear of the beast, nothing uh, that, that stands out, and neither should we. Jesus said, and by the way, when I say the beast, I don't mean just the Antichrist, but I mean all the demons, all the world that, that falls a beast because he's not killing everybody personally. He's using his people to, to trample on believers. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We are to have absolute reverent fear for Lord Jesus. Also true, though, they can't die. The two witnesses can't die 
until God allows it. I would say this is, has to be at least part of the reason that they obey in the absence of fear. They know that the beast is coming for them. They know the approximate day of the death, but they also know we can't die until God allows it, until that time comes, until specifically the end of the three and a half years, which is the end of the seven years of the tribulation uh, and the worst part of the tribulation. Now, you have to admit it would be awfully strange to know the day of your death. Uh, that would be eerie in, in, in every possible way. But they also had assurance of protection until that day would occur. So my question is, is this also true of us, that we can't die until God allows it? Well, I've heard Christians say this is true, uh, but they often say it in, in sort of a fatalistic sort of way. So they say, well, uh, I, I see them engaged in, uh, I'm just going to call it generally foolish behavior. Ve I'll, I'll, I'll say very foolish behavior. Uh, that is going to seriously harm their health, could harm their health, could uh, risk their lives unnecessarily. Uh, so, so they're just engaging in absolutely foolish behavior, and they say, well, what's the problem? You know, it, when my day is up, when my time is up, and nothing's going to change that. You see a problem with that? They are foolishly, presumptuously, testing God. They're daring God to protect them despite whatever foolish behavior they're engaged in. Now, it's true. God does know the exact date of your death, and I believe you cannot die unless God allows it. But if you test him like that, he might just allow it. If you test him through any sort of, of foolishness, he, he may have already taken this into account, do you see, when he has determined the exact date of your death. So do not put the Lord your God to the test. But these two witnesses will be acting in the center of God's will. They'll be walking in obedience by faith, just as you and I can. Granted, they can breathe fire and destroy their enemies and all those sort of things. But however it happens, God will protect them. And the same is true for us. As we bear witness to the Lord's work, we are protected by him. And if he wants us to remain, that is his prerogative. If his plan is that we are martyred along with these other two lead martyrs, or sometime before that happens, that is his will as well. Obeying God might just extend our lives, but obeying God might also shorten our lives. But either way, there is tremendous blessing in the process. As we were driving now 10 days ago to Minneapolis to be with Ryan and Monica, we heard an old message, all messages from Elizabeth Elliot are old, by the way, uh, but a message from her and this was my favorite line, and you can imagine we're, we're praying furiously and all sorts of things uh, going through our mind. And at that point, all we knew was emergency C-section, so um, it, was, it was slightly different as well, but here was my favorite line. If we love the Lord, we will also love his will. Think about that. If we love the Lord, we will also love his will. Love his will. Not just, you know, ah, oh, it's God's will. Love his will. So we, we took that uh, to heart as much as we could before we knew uh, what was going to happen uh, to Wesley. Would we love God's will no matter what? That was the question on our hearts and minds. Uh, even though we believe we have witnessed a miracle, we, we don't know what the future holds for Wesley. But you know what? I don't know what the future holds for me. 
You don't know what the future holds for you. This afternoon or tomorrow, you, you, you don't know. Now, wisdom dictates we, we have experience and we understand certain things will probably happen. Therefore, we need to make plans. We can't just go about life, you know, as if we're going to die at any moment, whatever. We have to make plans. But as you make plans, do you say, do you think, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go do this, Lord willing. Somehow, it was a sermon 30-some years ago. I heard a sermon on that, and, and, and it became a habit for me. And I do as much as possible. It just sort of flows off my lips, but, but as it flows off my lips, I, I, I really try to mean it. I really try to mean it. Lord willing, I, I think I said it with Wesley, Lord willing, he will come home today. But do you, it doesn't matter whether you say it or not, whether you verbalize it, do, 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 you, do you submit to God's will and do you gratefully submit to his will? Do you love the Lord's will, whatever that might be. We also see, though, in this text that the world loves to celebrate evil. Here's how that's going to play out. Verse 9 again. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And then it goes on to say they're, they're going to send gifts and presents to all their buddies because their tormentors are dead. There's a lot happening here. First of all, you should recognize the phrase people's languages, tribes, and nations. We've repeated it several times already in this series. It's used several times in Daniel and in Revelation. And it's always a way to represent all peoples of the earth, or at least representatives of all peoples of the earth. And I think the most significant use of it comes from chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, these are all converts, may, may be new converts just during the seven-year tribula tribulation. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What do we have here? We have a great promise. We have a promise that the gospel will reach into every corner of the earth, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, all nations. But not only will it reach all those people, it will convert all people. It will convert some people from all tribes and nations and peoples and languages. And this promise is the very motivation for us to take the gospel anywhere, to take the gospel to foreign lands, to take the gospel to hard-to-reach places, and to take the gospel across the street and to your work buddies. And what it does, it's a motivation because it's a promise that our efforts will bear fruit. Do, do, do you understand? It's not just an effort that God will be with you, although he will. It's, an, it's a promise that our, uh, our, our efforts will bear fruit. Now, we don't know who is going to believe. God doesn't give us a download of all the people we witness to that they're going to become a Christian. But we do know that our gospel impact will prove successful. It is absolutely guaranteed. Here, though, it's used a little differently than this glorious promise. It's used in a way to say that some representatives from all corners of the globe will hate God with a furious passion and will specifically hate these two witnesses with a furious passion. They hate God so much they will celebrate at the death of his saints. Have we seen that before? Have you seen the world celebrating at the death of his saints? For all of human history, people, the world has been doing that. They will send presents to each other and say, isn't it great? They're dead, finally. Let's, let's have a party. For three and a half years, 
The two witnesses will send plagues throughout the entire earth, but for a mere three and a half days, the godless world will celebrate their demise. It should not surprise us that the world will celebrate their death, that the world celebrates evil all the time. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. You remember why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, not just avoids it, hates it, and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. I've never met a believer who likes to have their sins exposed, right? Even as believers, we, we tend to hide in the darkness. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be that vulnerable, let alone the way unbelievers might see that. Of course, they love darkness. Do you notice where all this is going to take place? Their dead bodies will lie in the street of, that, of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. In other words, what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the great city that killed Jesus, is also going to kill these two witnesses. The world has always and will always celebrate evil. It should not surprise us that they do. Now, you and I tend to think, you know, things are getting worse. You ever get that sense? I, I have every week, pretty much, I have someone sending me an email or a text saying, hey, hey, hey Rich, did, did you read this? Look, the world's getting worse. And I'll do the same thing. I'll see something on Twitter. I'll send, hey, hey, you'd be surprised. The world's getting worse. Can you believe it? Here's another example. Do you do that in the news? That, that's the problem with the news, right? It just it, it gets into us. So, so, yes, we think, oh, it's getting worse, and it's worse and worse. But, but, but understand this. If you were living in the first century, and you're, you're a Christian, and you were just put in prison, dragged off to prison by a man named Saul, you think things are pretty bad? Oh, yeah. Christianity was just born, yet there is massive persecution. Every Christian you know is being persecuted. Things were pretty bad. What if you were a believer, one of the uh, 100 million people who were killed from 100 years of communism? You think the world looks pretty bad? See, every generation thinks the world is the worst it can be. And believe me, I, I, I tend to, to feel that way at times. But obviously, nothing will be worse than the last three and a half years that is described here. But there is much to celebrate as well. And one of them is a wonderful resurrection. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Uh, you can imagine, right, after all of that celebrating. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now here's what's uh, interesting to me. I, I, I would think that, that sometime during the last three and a half years, while the two witnesses are there, somebody in some position of power somewhere would put the pieces together. You know, they, they would have uh, stumbled upon the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. Do you understand what I mean? They, they, somebody's going to figure this out. So, so you're watching on camera even. You don't even have to be there. But you see these two guys, and they're in Jerusalem, and, and they're breathing fire, and they're sending plagues anytime they want all over the earth. And, and, and somebody stumbles upon Revelation 11, and like, breathing fire, um, two guys, uh, Jerusalem. Somebody said, hey, hey, come here. 
<laughs> Check this out. I think I know who these guys are, right? You would think somebody is going to figure that out. And you know what? I'm convinced they will figure it out, and it won't matter. How do I know that? Because people discover the truth all the time, and it just doesn't matter. In fact, it makes things worse. They hate the truth all the more, the, the, the more they see it. And we know this chiefly because what happened during Jesus' day. You've got the Son of God in their midst, eating and drinking with them and teaching uh, them, and they hated him, and they reject the truth. So, of course, they will reject these two witnesses. No question about it. But God wins in the end, always does, by resurrecting their dead bodies. A question, though, we might have is, was this a, uh, what we might call, quote-unquote, ordinary resurrection? You know, there's no such thing as an ordinary resurrection. But Lazarus or, or somebody that Jesus uh, resurrected from the dead, was it an ordinary resurrection? Or was this, uh, the two witnesses, receiving their glorified physical bodies, right? I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 15, our glorified physical bodies that we're all waiting for, that we're all going to receive when Jesus comes again. Was the, did they enter their glorious uh, physical bodies. Um, now, I believe, first of all, let me back up there, there's a great earthquake here that's happening, and, and I believe this could be uh, the precursor to the return of Christ. Now, obviously, it happens at the end of the three and a half years, so Jesus is coming any, any moment here, any moment, and it occurs perfectly if you look at the end of chapter 6 where the mountains are being removed and there's, there's uh, a, a geological chaos end of chapter 6. Here at the end of chapter 11, there's an earthquake. At the end of chapter 16, check it out later if you want, there's also an earthquake. The, the, uh, gra- the, everything's split in, I think it's three parts there. And, and that is also the return of Christ. And if you've been following along, understand how my framework for Revelation is what's called recapitulation or, or repeating, that you see you know, the same story, the return of Christ, it's told this way. Uh, I believe that's chapter 6. The return of Christ at the end of chapter 11, but told a little different way. Uh, the return of Christ, end of chapter 16, but, but expressed a little differently. But there, there's such commonality uh, between all those. I'm, I'm convinced they're the same. Um, and so, so you've got Jesus coming soon, the end of the three and a half years. So the fact that the two witnesses also were called up into the clouds, right? That ought to ring a bell. We looked at all those New Testament passages that, that talked about clouds uh, that happens at Christ's return where the saints meet the Lord in the air. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul wrote this, We who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And the, the two witnesses are what? They're asleep, uh, metaphorically asleep. They're, they're dead. They were killed. So they very well could be, and this is the way I'm, I'm understanding it, they are first fruits of resurrected believers, right? Again, Jesus might be coming seconds later, hours later, uh, very, very soon. So they're, they're dead saints who receive their resurrected bodies as sort of a first fruits of all the other believers that are going to be following. Again, it could be seconds, minutes, hours later. So that's the way I understand this passage. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't really make sense to me that, that they're resurrected sort of in an ordinary way, and then, again, seconds, minutes, hours later, they receive their glorified body. So, so I, I sort of put them uh, together. I can't absolutely prove that, but it makes sense. 
Uh, but either way, it leads to our, our next point, that death is life in victory. You believe that? Death is life in victory. Except for two people in the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah, and for those who will be alive at Jesus' return, all of us must first pass through death. But there's something about the resurrection of these two witnesses that, that in my mind, sort of accentuates this death to life. When they were killed, like all believers who die, immediately go in the presence of God. So they're not waiting for three and a half days to, to see Jesus. They immediately see Jesus. You know, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So they're immediately in the Lord's presence, but their, their death led quickly to life, eternal life. It's just a beautiful picture of believers passing from death to life, and it might include their glorious resurrection. So you see, this is why they do not hide from the beast. This is why you and I can bear witness without fear. This is why even if we live through the tribulation or something like it, we need not be afraid. Also, our death leads to ultimate victory. I love this verse. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now, I can look at that, that verse and, and quickly say, you know, I understand how the blood of the lamb is going to conquer uh, the dragon and the beast and, you know, all, all of his uh, evil works. I get that, right? Jesus conquers Satan in every possible way. The question is, how does our testimony conquer Satan? And to me, the greatest way for our testimony to conquer Satan is to lead uh, countless people to repentance and faith in Christ. Would that, imagine, uh, millions, perhaps billions of people passing from death to life because of the witness of the two lead martyrs, but also the witness of other hundreds of millions, maybe billions of believers bearing witness to Jesus. Would that not be conquering Satan? Absolutely the case. And then we, we, we see this final uh, point is repentance. There will be a mass revival and repentance during the tribulation. I read that uh, Revelation 7, all the saints innumerable gathered around the throne. Some absolutely believe all of those were converted during the tribulation. I don't know if all of them were or a great many of them, but uh, very well could be from every tribe and nation, people and language. On the other hand, though, we see several times throughout this book where there's wrath being poured out uh, upon people, and it says repeatedly, they refuse to repent. No matter what came their way, they refuse to repent. So, so we, see, we see some of that, but here it's different. Verse 13 tells us that the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, now why am I saying that little phrase there represents genuine repentance? Well, first of all, uh, contrast that a little bit with Philippians 2. It says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And, and if you've heard that taught or, or preached, you understand, it probably means all people, believers, unbelievers, they one day will admit that Jesus is Lord. They, they may not be bowing their knee humbly, uh, but they're doing so because they, they realize finally who he is. That could be believers and unbelievers like. But here, something different is happening. It matches another passage in, four, in chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead 
with an eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Do you see? The gospel message proclaimed here was to fear God and give him glory, which is the same response in our passage. They were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So the message of the witness of, of our testimony and of the, of the angel is the same. The gospel message is the same. And the response is the same, fear and giving glory to God. And their impact is also similar, repentance on an immense scale. How, how big was this repentance here? Well, verse 13 again. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, just reading it, face valid, it seems to be saying 7,000 were killed in the earthquake and the rest gave glory to God. We're saved. Now, does that mean that in Jerusalem on that day, uh, when, the, when the, the earthquake happens, that, that anyone who wasn't killed in the earthquake is immediately uh, saved? Maybe. It might just be a, a way uh, 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 of saying most of them are a, a, a great, great many. Nevertheless, we see all throughout Revelation, there will be widespread, massive repentance during this time. I believe uh, we see this earthquake several times. I mentioned uh, chapter uh, 16. Uh, uh, chapter 6 implies an earthquake. But I think what's being described here also matches Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Remember what, what was happening on the Mount of Olives? Praying before his crucifixion where he's arrested. And that Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That perfectly matches Revelation 19 where Jesus comes on a white horse and armies with him. So the earthquakes, I believe, are the same, and it directly precedes the final return of Christ. I was uh, driving here this morning and listening to my current favorite song, which changes, right, from, from time to time. It happens to be from the same album, that, that song I played a couple of weeks ago, which may have been the, the, the largest response to a sermon ever. Uh, not anything I said, but everyone wanted to know, what was the name of that song? Uh, you played me. What was the name of that song? Everyone's excited about the song, which is great. My favorite song comes from that album, and I'm listening to it, and my favorite line there, and it's just, it's just hauntingly uh, beautiful, but the, the line says, and in one moment, you changed everything when the weight of sin fell from my soul. In one moment, you changed everything when the weight of sin fell from my soul. And, and probably every other time I listen to that, and I've listened to it dozens of times, I, I start to get choked up. And I just think, in one moment, all of my sin fell from my soul. What Jesus did for me. And I'm reflecting on that. I'm getting teary. I'm reflecting on the last 10 days and what everyone has, has been through. And my overwhelming thought was, I deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. Well, I deserve eternal 
hell is what I deserve. If, if, I, if I want to claim something, that's what I deserve. But I deserve nothing. I could die this instant and, and, and be delightfully, I would be more happy, wouldn't I not, if I died this instant. I deserve nothing. We have to, tomorrow night, women to women, how do you steward the suffering in your life when it comes? How do you deal with what's already in your life, what, what yet is coming? How do you walk by faith in the midst of the world celebrating pain to us, celebrating the things that we hate? More importantly, celebrating the things that God hates. We've got to steward these things and help one another walk by faith. Let's pray. Father, we, you give us so much. We have everything we need in this book. We have everything we need for life and godliness by, in your truth, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the community and fellowship of believers. Lord, there's so much pain in our lives. Some are right in the thick of it. Some have passed through it. Others, it's coming and we have no idea. Lord, may these two witnesses, these two martyrs, give us encouragement as, as the great cloud of witnesses all throughout the Bible are meant to Give us encouragement. They're there as examples for us to see people who have suffered greatly and have held on to their faith. Lord, we, we want to hold on to you, but we know you are holding on to us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for a final song. Hopefully we, we behold God in the scriptures, but let's... Let's uh, sing together about that. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God. Seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare, come let us adore him. Who has felt the nails upon his hand? Bearing all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Nothing can compare. 
Come, let us adore Him. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.